David, tell me, every time I come to your house, you're always playing this instrument. Well, I'm a frustrated musician, Eric. I need this, you see. I can, I've never been able to play the piano. Sorry for you, you've got an orchestra. Well, explain how it works, will you? Well, actually, it's fairly straightforward. It's a musical computer, and as you know, Eric, the right hand is lead instruments with a choice of 18 different ones, and the left hand is rhythms in this half, and backgrounds in this half, and it's all been fed onto hundreds of tape tracks. All right, well, I suggest that uh, you play a little simple piece. What about it? I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> my party piece. <laughs> bye bye blues with two fingers all and right. nothing up my sleeve. the octave in the left hand and let's try a, a trombone background. Well, that's fine David for the quick steps but what about some of the other rhythms? Here's a French accordion with a Viennese waltz. Welcome to this week's Wednesday with Fab. I'm Ed Chen. And I'm John Stone. As mentioned last week, those who had ordered through Barnes & Noble are receiving their copy of Eyes of the Storm. They are also getting ready to show off Paul's photos in the National Portrait Gallery. Paul is a much better photographer than you might have guessed. Well, he's, you know, he's a creative fella, <laughs> which kind of goes across all mediums. The first thing I noticed when looking through the pictures that have been released... Most of them were in black and white, but then they hit Miami and Paul pulled out the color roll. It's just kind of the same thing that we always say. It's like, well, where was this? And then the world became color. <laughs> There's some really nice photos of them in and around the Miami area, particularly the four of them swimming in the ocean. These skinny, very pale young boys in this blue, blue water. 
<laughs> and one photo which he in particular likes where George is being served something, probably a scotch and coke, by a young girl in, uh, well, what was probably what passed for a bikini at the time, although it was pretty modest by even later 1960s standards. Oh, yeah. And you just don't see her head. It, you know, and Paul was like, well, I could have zoomed out, but I like the framing. Yeah, I don't know that a lot of the swimsuits were really bikinis. They were just basically known as two-piece, two-piece swimsuits. Bikini was like something more specific, and they weren't common for a long time. At the very least, the later 60s, something that might have come in with free love and all of that. <laughs> Right. It all started at the BN. <laughs> <laughs> There's an excerpt from what Paul has written for the book. It, it looks like he's written a fair amount of text, uh, and I wanted to go ahead and read it. It's a really nice excerpt, which really kind of describes a lot of things. Things were happening so wildly that I cannot say that photography was in the forefront of my mind as we toured. Even though we wanted to transform from a little bit into a big band, <laughs> and even though we hoped for international acceptance when we went to France and then the U.S., no one could have predicted what I described as eyes of the storm. At first, I was tempted to call it that because the Beatles certainly were at the center or the eye of a self-generated storm. But when I looked at all these photographs, I realized it really should be plural, the eyes of the storm, because of all the pictures that others were taking the photographs I was taking, and also the eyes of the fans that greeted us, the security that looked after us, who is looking at who. The camera always seems to be shifting with me photographing them, the press photographing us, and those thousands and thousands of people out there wanting to capture this storm. <laughs> That's probably what's most fascinating about that book. I haven't seen it yet. But the idea of what they were seeing out there. Because you, we've seen millions of pictures of fan photos and magazine photos and you know but this is from the eyes of the storm and you look at Ringo's photos those are also very much insider photos it's them having fun it's them in the rooms when they're being trapped but still finding a way to have some fun all right, so Ringo is still on tour. I'm going to be seeing Ringo real soon now, and I will report on the San Francisco show next week. He's jumbled up the band a bit, hasn't he? Just a little bit. It's the same one that he had last time. The big change is uh, Hamish Stewart. Todd left, and so there's been a little bit of change, but uh, most of the guys are still the same guys. Right. He seems to have fallen into a comfortable place with them, which, you know, all right, that's the way you want to do it. I would like to see him shake it up a little bit, and as would most of us, but if he doesn't want to do it, he doesn't want to do it. <laughs> the fact that he's even out there. <laughs> that alone it makes it an admirable thing. Exactly. So it, it's like, Ringo, yes, be as comfortable as you need to be. You know, if you want to play with the same guys over, that's fine. All right, so what we kind of wanted to talk about this week, our topic for the week, we wanted to talk mostly about the Mellotron and the Moog, but also more generally the Beatles and keyboards, and particularly the electronic style of keyboards. There's lots of piano. Just around this time, uh, Brian Epstein makes an offer for you to join the Beatles. I was coming off after we'd finished one night, and he shouted out across the room, as Roy, can I have a word with you? And I just stopped. I said, yeah, hi, Brian. And he said, um, the four lads, he called them the four lads, have asked him to ask me 
would I be interested to go back as they were leaving in, in a few days to go back with them to procure a record deal and uh, I said well you know this is an incredible offer Brian I said no I, but I, I really don't know I can't answer you right now I said but I can let you know he said well please think about it because it could be a hell of a thing for you and I said okay I'll, I'll think about it because I, I walked away across the club and as I'm walking away I'm thinking wait a minute I, I think it was Peter Eckhorn that made me do it because I, as I'm walking away I thought well I walked out on Peter and then I thought to myself well I didn't like that and then now I'm going to walk out on Manfred and I've got the car which I thought was great you know I mean it gave me everything I wanted and I thought am I going to do it again and I, I said well, wait a minute so I go back and I said Brian I, I don't know what I'm saying i, I got to give you my answer now I'm going to decline your offer but thanks you know but I said, I really appreciate the, the offer, but I can't do it. I'm under a three-year contract. So, well, maybe you might change your mind, but, you know, that was it. They met Billy Preston very early on, and the whole tradition coming up was Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis. Right. But right. it probably wasn't until that first trip to Hamburg that they actually took a hand at trying to learn the piano. Paul had his dad who taught him some of the basics. Yeah, well, when Stu was on bass, that's what Paul played in large part was piano. It's Paul who spent the most time learning the piano. But, uh, right. you know, John and George, I would guess that they learned their three-finger piano during that time as well. Right. But the truth is most of the early piano work on Beatle records is actually George Martin and not them at all. So For sure. There came a point when they started utilizing keyboards in a different way uh, later on. We speak of George Martin, a record we've spoken of before. George Martin took an interval which was created for the BBC and turned it into the record Time Beat by one Ray Cathode. Right. The actual author, the creator of the work which George based the record on was Delia Derbyshire, uh, who would go on to work at the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. And her job, amongst other things, was to create electronic music. Right. So therefore, mathematically, if George Martin is the fifth Beatle, then that's where you have to mark. That's when electronic music kind of began within the band. That would be a good line of demarcation. It turns out that there was probably a time when Paul wasn't quite so sure about the strings for yesterday. In anthology and elsewhere, it's like, oh, well, you know, George Bard suggested it. And then Paul said, oh, well, I'm not so sure about that. Then George Bard said, well, let's just do it once. And then Paul liked it. But apparently that wasn't quite the way. Because Paul went down and talked with Delia Derbyshire. You know, I, I would guess that George Martin had told him about some of this business with electronic music. So he went down and actually asked her 
to work up a little something that might become the backing for yesterday. Was that in 65? I would guess it would be. It really took them a full year from late 63 to, at the earliest, the break at the beginning of 65 for Paul to actually get yesterday finished. I assume that this was all going on in 66, so that yesterday was already out. I suppose that's a possibility as well, but that would seem a little bit late to me. Maybe this was for the mysterious Paul McCartney Capitol album, huh? Who knows? Paul was there sitting, thinking, and listening to what was going on, and you know he likes to talk about that when he claims that he was the avant-garde one before John was, that he was listening to music of all sorts which i think is fair when that became a point of contention in the beetle world i think there was nobody there to really speak up for paul and he does feel like i was there doing all of this and then john gets all the credit paul was certainly the first to say well maybe we can turn some of these sounds on their ear right so the first time the beatles actually used a keyboard instrument which wasn't more or less a variation on the piano. When would you say maybe uh, we can work it out with the harmonium? Yeah. Whereas the piano is a percussive instrument, the harmonium is based on wind and leans more to padded chords. And so it was a different sound for the band. Fussing and fighting, my friend. dive deeply into the business of painting with sound where they really just don't want a single normal quote-unquote sounding instrument so really the coming of the mellotron was right in their wheelhouse yeah looking into this <laughs> led me to some real interesting information the original instrument was called a chamberlain and you can still find those invented by a fellow named chamberlain yes Fancy that. This is a brand new invention. It's called the Chamberlain Music Master. And it is absolutely revolutionary because it can sound like every instrument in the orchestra all at the same time. Fabulous. Fabulous thing. And someone who worked for him actually took two of the machines and disappeared and went to England. Found somebody who would manufacture the recording heads that he needed, tape heads. And then he basically started marketing the Mellotron. It was some years before Chamberlain discovered that there was this competitive thing going on, and eventually it was all worked out in the courts. <laughs> but the Mellotron that the Beatles used was actually a stolen instrument. <laughs> <laughs> now, how did the Beatles come to the Mellotron? I've heard a couple versions of it. Was it John Lennon who bought one and had one in the house before EMI rented one? He did have one in the house. It was like August of 65 
when it went into his home. So it was pretty early on. And he used it to make some of those tapes that are out. Mellotron rehearsal one through five, which is really just John kind of playing around, goofing around with, oh, well, what happens if I hit this key and turn this dial? Exactly. That's the first instance that I know of was August of 65. They were out on tour. How often was he at home to play with the Mellotron? Through Rubber Soul, certainly. He was coming home at the end of the day and, and he could, you know, flip it on and do fun things with it. Yeah. Somebody probably has a diary. But <laughs> well, I we may well find that out from Mal. Played with the Mellotron today. Had to load this heavy-ass thing into John <laughs> Lennon's house. Yeah, they didn't travel well. They weren't really made to be mobile at all. So Let's kind of explain a little bit about the Mellotron. The Mellotron, or at least later Mellotrons, the first one just had a single keyboard, I believe. That's correct. 35 keys and like three sets of dials. It was a shorter keyboard than what you'd find on a piano. And basically what it is, is you hit a key and a recorded tape would play over a tape head. The length of the tape usually was no more than eight seconds approximately. And so you'd have to release it and it would have to spool back and before you could play it again. So the guitar on Bungalow Bill, that was probably about the longest Mellotron loop there might have been. Yes, it was moving along. The early Mellotrons were different than Mellotron even a year later. The later ones, the one that EMI was to actually buy, which Paul McCartney now owns, the Battleship Gray one, that actually had two sets of keyboards on it, I believe. Two 35-key keyboards on the right or the left. One of the interesting things that I read was that one of the original Mellotrons of the, of the two that Chamberlain took over there, Todd Rundgren bought and, of course, brought it back to the United States. And it was the keyboard that they used on XTC Skylarking. Just a little bit of weirdness. I kind of wonder what Mellotron it was that Oasis was to use later on. I mean, because there aren't that many of them out there. Certainly, there aren't that many of them still in operable condition. I knew someone who had one. Did you ever get to play it? I got to fiddle with it for a few minutes. There is now a Mellotron and a Mellotron XL app you can buy. Uh, (laughs) You know, for five bucks, that may be worth a little bit of investment. (laughs) Right. The electric sitar was worth the four bucks that I paid for it. (laughs) Well, good. Be looking forward to the album. (laughs) Who's going to do that? (laughs) Lord Sitar. (laughs) Right. The Beatles actually didn't use the Mellotron as much as people like to imagine. It's a sound that is associated with them, although they were probably not the biggest proponents of it. You know, Pink Floyd was probably a bigger user of the Mellotron than the Moody Blues. Yeah, the Beatles used it some, but not a lot. 
Yeah, it was really Revolver when they first started uh, saying, hey, we can put something on record with this. Right. Tomorrow Never Knows being the most obvious example. Correct. Then they used it heavily distinctively on uh, Strawberry Fields Forever. Let me take you down Cause I'm going To Strawberry Fields But, you know, it's not all over Sgt. Pepper at all. There might be a little instance of it in the middle of Lovely Rita, although that is debated. Yeah. Jeff well. Emmerich says that the, the sound was created by a bit of sticky tape on the capstan. Who are the other people that say it was a Mellotron? Well, it sounds like a Mellotron at about about a minute ten into Lovely Rita. Hmm. I don't know the part. There's a little wobbly keyboard type sound, which which resembles the Mellotron flutes to a certain extent. It doesn't sound like certainly an acoustic instrument, right? And it also doesn't sound like something that's just been very speeded. You know, it's kind of got. The distinctive Mellotron sound. Yeah. Well, even so, that doesn't say that the Mellotron is all over Sgt. Pepper. It's just barely used. And they they don't use it much, even going forward. We were talking about Strawberry Fields, and that is Paul's favorite instance of the Mellotron. The flute sound bank, bank four on the right-hand keyboard of the (laughs) instrument. (laughs) Specifically, these are all the strips of tape, and each one of these is five feet long approximately. And they're not loops, they're just strips. And each is connected by a spring down here to the, the bottom of the frame at the lower part of the instrument. So, when you press a note and the pinch roller starts advancing the tape against the capstan, it just pulls it up. And when it runs out of tape, it'll just stop. And then you let go, and it just gets pulled right back down by the spring. The tapes that were on the Chamberlain, and of course that means the original Mellotron, were recorded by the players from the Lawrence Welk show. Well, now that's interesting, but uh, those are not the ones that went into the later Mellotrons. The ones under the name Mellotron. I mean, there was also the Chamberlain as a a very similar instrument that was being sold under that name. Right. Well, apparently the deal fell through when Lawrence Welk was going to invest in the the Chamberlain if they changed the name of the tapes to, like, the Welk machine or something. (laughs) That's a little bit weird to think that the... Most psychedelic of instruments could have been (laughs) using Lawrence Welk tapes. Right. (laughs) Tomorrow Never Knows and Strawberry Fields were 
the early songs, maybe Lovely Rita, maybe not. And even if it is in the middle of Lovely Rita, it's only a very brief bit. It's not anywhere else on Pepper, although it does show back up again in Magical Mystery Tour. Flying is just filled with Mellotron bits. Completely filled. It might have just started out as an improvisation. More of John Lennon playing around with the Mellotron, you know, especially seeing what the other bands are doing. Oh, we we can do better than that. (laughs) Right. I don't know the composing of that song. It sounds to me like it started on the guitar, but it might have started with the keyboards. I think I've read that Paul may have come up with the uh, central riff on the piano at one point. Don't quote me on that, although I just quoted myself. (laughs) I'm going to quote you and say, yeah, it kind of sounds like Paul. That melody is Polish. (laughs) (laughs) Then it shows up again on the White Album, although they're really not using it for anything psychedelic there. I, you know, I guess they just like the flamenco guitar bit. Yeah, it's clearly an edit. And so it could have just been an effect that John liked. I mean, there's some question that might have been used on Glass Onion too, right? We have no definitive record of it. But again, a lot of people say that there's bits, particularly in the fade of Glass Onion, that sound like a Mellotron. Do we believe that or not? I don't know. And then it's also all over that year's Christmas record, which again, also makes sense. And that also may not have been their decision. I mean, they had handed off the editing job to somebody else. Right. Kenny Everett. It's entirely possible that he commissioned the Mellotron bits or he said, oh, well, I like that tape and I like that tape. It's a little bit weird that you kind of have these two modes. You have the samples and then you also have a rhythm thing where you can do like they do on Strawberry Fields, where it's very single distinct notes that you can alter the pitch and tone of. Right. And then George would use it on the Wonderwall music soundtrack. Since the movie itself was kind of psychedelic, it makes sense. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that record. He did a good job. Well, he did a better job than John using it on two versions. Uh, I, I think John and Yoko were just looking around for anything which would make noise. Oh, we can do this. And this right. complements Yoko's uh, multi-track voice very well. Okay. For those of you who've never heard two versions, and granted, I haven't listened to the entire record in a very long time, there is indeed Mellotron all over it. Right. I mean, that record has always struck me as being them having fun. It's John's studio, so Yoko is not really part of the creation of it other than her ideas. And so he's kind of showing off for her. <laughs> we could do this. He has this girl. It, it's what he always said. You know, he invited this girl over and it's like, well, we can go play with the tapes. So they went upstairs. We will get to the Moog, but uh, we also wanted to talk about George Harrison's brief diversion into the world of keyboard authored songs thinking about this in a way it's kind of like india both took george away from the guitar and brought him right back to it a year plus later yeah it's really when he went to go learn the sitar that he stopped writing on the guitar for a while yes definitely And then when they were back from india i guess they had no keyboards with them in india well other than 
the ones that they purchased in India, but George was writing on guitar again. Although not strictly. I mean, you know, by Let It Be, he was doing both. He basically created Old Brown Shoe right there on film, on the piano. He kind of got into it, even Within You, Without You, although it's a sitar song. He wrote it, according to him, at Klaus Warman's house on a keyboard. And that was kind of the pattern he, he went with for a while. Taxman was certainly a guitar song. Taxman certainly was. But I want to tell you, I think that's it was written on the keyboards. I mean, once I saw him working on Old Brown Shoe, I thought, it's those weird keyboard things that he does. And so I think he wrote it on the keyboards. That also kind of has that bird sound to it. He might have picked something out of one of their songs. It also could have been written on both of them. But I see what you're saying. Yes, there is quite possibly a keyboard origin, do I want to tell you. And then Love You Too. The thing about the Indian songs, it seems that the drone is more easily accomplished, or at least for George, in his head, it was more easily accomplished writing the basic tune out on the keyboard. Yeah, and I think in that original demo he doesn't even change chords it's just his melody which kind of corresponds to what we know about his piano playing (laughs) three-finger piano as klaus describes it Uh, right he's able to pick out the tunes he wants but just barely and also in get back where we see him talking to billy about well how do i get this chord right he's very fundamental he kind of knows music but when he's instructing Ringo what he should play in Octopus's Garden. I mean, he knows enough to go, well, this is the passing chord. This is what you need to go to next. But he's not really accomplished at piano at all. (laughs) He would become as accomplished as he needed to be. He was a guitar player. I mean, John was never really anywhere near a virtuoso at piano either. Well, I don't know if any of them are virtuosos. Paul is a more than competent piano player. Yes. He knows what his limitations are, but he can get around pretty much anything. John, as long as it's kind of mid-tempo, as long as it's Jealous Guy or Imagine, he can do that on piano. But when he wants to go fast, I don't think John could play the Lady Madonna intro on piano, the Bad Penny Blues intro. (laughs) I don't think he could have. I think of John's piano playing with Instant Karma. You know, it's like, ching, 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 ching. That's about as fast as he's going to (laughs) go. On Pepper, Within You Without You was written on keyboards. His story is that he was at Klaus's house, and he began to compose a song about what they had been doing that night, which was, we were talking. So it was definitely on keyboards. Which corresponds to what I was just saying about the drone is better accomplished on a keyboard than it is, particularly an electronic keyboard, than from a guitar. Oh, yeah. Blue Jay Way, which he wrote in L.A., is virtually the same story. He, he's waiting for Derek and the group to show up, and he goes to a keyboard that's in the rented house that he's at and writes Blue Jay Way. And it's another short keyboard. It's like a 35 to 40 key keyboard. It's a Hammond chord organ is what they call it. Yeah. And there it is, that drone. There's a fog up on And interestingly enough, the instrument still exists, although it is not operable. If you go visit the house that George rented, you will find that Hammond organ there. It is an S6, apparently manufactured in 1965. 
Aha. However, the owner says the last time he tried to plug it in, smoke came out of it. (laughs) Yeah, those old 1965 organs, they're supposed to smoke. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't catch on fire, but smoke came out of it. And it's like, I'm a little bit surprised somebody hasn't gone and paid a huge sum of money and snapped that thing up. Right. I mean, much like we were talking about with the Mellotron, you got 35 to 40 keys on the right-hand side. And then on the left-hand side, you have buttons to allow you to make chords. Right. light that was also started on keyboard and it's all too much might well have been a keyboard song as i said you know they went to india they were at the ashram and then when he came back george was all on guitar again although he would not completely abandon the piano or the keyboard as a composing instrument but certainly the white album stuff was predominantly guitar based in composition right And I think you could say the same about the Abbey Road stuff, although there is a significant keyboard bit in something. So that may have had some keyboard origins. Possibly, although I've always assumed that that's all Billy Preston. You think it was Billy Preston's invention, or do you think it was something that George had sort of half-written and handed off to him? The song is strongly guitar or and every time I've ever seen them playing around with it, it's George on guitar. So, I mean, it's possible he suggested the part. Well, so we certainly know George was writing the big chunk of it on guitar in Get Back. I mean, that's what we see is him and John on the guitars trying to figure it out. Right. But in Let It Be, it is back to the keyboard songs. And, and again, that may be because George was like, I don't need this. I'll just toss something off for you. And the easiest way for him to toss off a song was to just sit down at the piano and, oh, okay, I can write a happy little tune. <laughs> well, he was churning them out at that point. You know, if, if you sit down and really pick through his comments, I mean, he writes a bunch of songs, Wawa and Old Brown Shoe and I Me Mine and Hear Me Lord. They all come within a pretty short period of time. So he was hot. (laughs) Most of all things must pass were to come out of that period of time. Yeah, a lot of it was. He wouldn't write that much new stuff uh, when he came down to actually record that record. Well, I mean, that's what he says to John. It's like, I just want to get this backlog of stuff out. Right. By that time, a tune like Dare Dune had been around for two years. Art of Dying had been around for three. Right. Art of Dying. Now, I wonder if that would have been started on a keyboard. That that was that time period that we're talking about. It is. You know, that sort of late revolver, early pepper sessions when George would be writing on keyboards. Hmm. Just a thought. If, if you have any thoughts on it, let us know. It'd be fascinating to find out, you know, really if there were some deep cassettes, deep tapes that are certainly not anything a record company would go, well, yeah, we'll put this out. But from a historical point of view, you know, it'd be fascinating to 
because I would think that George would be recording demos. You know, by 68, he had a pretty decent studio in his house. Yeah, and I mean, we know that Olivia has series of tapes. So, you know, what's on those tapes? Or, well, I mean, the fact that George had uh, the best copy of the Esher demos, the original copy, you know that his archives are around. Right. We don't have that many of George's songwriting demos, not really, until all things must pass. And Revolver. I mean, Revolver came out with, you know, basically a demo of Love You Too. Particularly since we've already gotten those boxes, that would be a really cool thing for them to just put out digitally. Demos? The Harrison demos. Uh, No, I wouldn't at all. (laughs) (laughs) A lost Harrison tape series. Right. Or in a lost McCartney. We need all of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. With McCartney, it's going to be like Prince. We're going to have to go through so much completely unreleased stuff before we get to the demos and things. <laughs> He'll have a decade's worth of albums before we start getting to the completely rare stuff, the demos and the and the work tapes. Well, McCartney had talks about the fact that he's still got this tape of him writing, fixing a hole and talks about how the evolution of it and, you know, having tasted John Lennon's evolution of strawberry fields, it's like, I'd like to hear an evolution of fixing a hole. I'd like to hear an evolution of quite a few things. If you got it. While there's still an audience to buy it. <laughs> right. Okay. So the other instrument that we wanted to talk about the moog robert moog right it was created in 1964 that would really be what would be described as the first synthesizer right i guess the first time the beatles would really ever come across it was when george was working with jackie lomax in los angeles in 68 Yes. In the mid-60s, an engineer named Robert Moog invented the modular synthesizer, a new type of instrument that generated unique sounds from oscillators and electronic controls that could be used to play melodies or enhance tracks with sound effects. George Harrison received a demonstration of the device in October 1968, and a month later, he ordered one of his own. Not that the Beatles would have sat around listening to Monkey's records, but the Moog had already been on a Monkey's record in 1967. And they may have. It also may have been, ooh, what's that? I wonder. Yeah. The Monkeys were both in the industry in Los Angeles and, you know, hanging around. Their ears were tuned to what was going on on the scene. Yeah. While the Beatles were on the other side of the pond and the Moog was yet to hit there. Well, the whole lightweight image of the monkeys is is a pretty silly thing because they were actually quite talented and part of the whole music scene at the time and not just the actual monkeys but i mean the whole industry behind them they would have been interested in whatever was presented as oh here's something cool i mean the wrecking crew was certainly knowledgeable of new and interesting sounds coming out of strange instruments well Heck, they've been working with Brian Wilson, so. Right. And Wilson, of course, had used the theremin several times, so. I was not aware that the Moog actually originally came from the theremin. I didn't know they had the same concepts. 
Do they? It was Robert Moog was a, a graduate student, and he was working on basically the theremin. He was designing and selling theremins. <laughs> you know, as we were talking about with Derbyshire, you know, people wanted new and different ways to create electronic music. It was that which spurred Moog to create the Moog. Wow. You kind of made it sound like he stood on a street corner with theremins going, Brian. <laughs> hey, 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 hey. <laughs> I wonder if uh, he had anything to do with selling the theremin to Desi Lu for the opening of Star Trek, huh? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, again, they're all at the same place at the same time, which, you know, again, as I was saying, well, it's entirely possible that the monkeys would have stumbled across a Moog and say, I want that, particularly as they were taking more control of their records. After George saw that, when he was in Los Angeles, working with Jackie Lomax. Lomax remembers making seven of the tracks for his album, Is This What You Want, in LA. And he says that Harrison, ever intrigued by new instruments and sounds, wanted to investigate the relatively new sonic world of the synthesizer. He hired the guys that worked on the Moog, Bernie Krause and Paul Beaver, Lomax recalls. They came down to the studio where we were recording and brought a synthesizer. We discussed what kind of sounds we wanted and they twiddled and fiddled around with the knobs and then we would kick them off the machine and start playing it ourselves. George had a particular thing in mind. He actually said, okay, come to England and I want one. Bernie Krause came over and installed it and, well, played some samples which more or less became electronic sounds, or at least one side of electronic sounds. Yes. That's just one of those weird things in a a real good man's life that he just kind of took somebody else's work and claimed it. But then I think sometimes it's a matter of, well, it's basically pops and crackles. (laughs) Maybe he didn't think, well, I need to credit these pops and crackles to Bernie Krause. But he did. I mean, Bernie Krause was credited on the first pressings of the record until they went and silvered his name out when he complained. Okay, we'll still put out this record, but we right. just won't give you credit. Right. But of course, by the time he complained, maybe they said, this record ain't going to sell. <laughs> that is true as well. We're still talking about Bernie Krause, and we probably wouldn't be talking about Bernie Krause had George not done that. Right. If electronic sounds were George Harrison presents Bernie Krause playing a bunch of crap on a Moog synthesizer, even were that on Apple, that would just be, oh, here's this weird rare collectible. George bought one of the earliest modular Moog systems, a Model 3P that had first hit the market in 1967. It came with a separate keyboard unit and ribbon controller, along with a set of cases. The basic model had two cases, but more could be added to customize the instrument. The cases contained dozens of controls organized into various sections, including the basic building blocks that are used in voltage-controlled synthesis, oscillators, filters, amplifiers, generators, and so on. Connections were made as required by the user with some of the 43 patch cords supplied with the synthesizer, and as a result, the instrument often ended up looking something like a musical telephone exchange The models that were available at the time were the 1, the 2, the 3 models, and George's 3P was the largest. The P stood for portable, and this was the one that most musicians wound up buying. 
Now, as I understand it, EMI bought a Moog as well. And that would not come in until the Abbey Road sessions. Right. I think for some time, people thought that George had brought in his for the sessions. But that's incorrect. The Beatles would take full advantage of that Moog. The simplest is probably Billy Preston playing it on I Want You, where he's just kind of creating ambient weather noise. Yeah, it's all white noise. Some of that's what's on George's record. <laughs> that is true as well. But it, the playing of it off of you know John's playing, we really couldn't hear how intricate it really was until we got the Giles Martin remix. Now we can tell. And it's like, that really was a completely thought out bit. I, I'm not really surprised, but I hadn't really heard it. Really on every vinyl copy, it's always just kind of seemed like, oh, well, they're just cranking up the distortion. Right. Now, that's what it sounded like originally. It was just white noise that wasn't much more than that, but it is more than that. That is one of the little gems which we got out of Giles's remix. Right. Billy Preston was actually doing something on that record. <laughs> right. There is actually a part he's playing. The part is all or mostly white noise, but what he is playing complements what's going on from the rest of the Beatles. Because is also a Moog song. The lead. <laughs> I mean, the rest of it's just it's all the harmonies, yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's the only significant instrument in Because. Well, there's a guitar and there is a, well, I'll have to look, a clavinet or something. But it is the Moog that is the instrumental bed of the song. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I'm not sure that it is. Hmm. <laughs> Okay, well, then am I mistaken? Well, I don't know. This is one of those things I'm going to have to listen to. That's the beauty of the show. I go, really? Is is it? I'll have to think about that because I don't know. There are two others that we know are Moog heavy or at least feature a significant Moog part. Maxwell Silverhammer. Yes. I would say that for the most part, they did it all with a delicate touch because surprisingly they didn't use it in any of the medley, which seems to me there'd be some places you could find to use it, but they used it very sparingly. Yeah. You know, Maxwell used it. It, It's really delicate on here comes the sun. 
that is the gem of it. It almost doesn't matter what that instrument was and the fact that it's a Moog, but it also could not be anything else other than a synthesizer. <laughs> it's, it's true. It's a real great use for it there. We like to talk about how Abbey Road was, to a certain extent, the forebearer of Prague. There is a perfect example of that. In a way, you could hear Genesis in that. The song itself is not that, but kind of the touch is. And certainly Maxwell Silver Hammer wouldn't be the same song without the uh, Moog. Beyond that, they really didn't use it all that much in their individual solo careers. What comes immediately to mind is the solo at 6 o'clock. That's Paul. That lead in six o'clock is very similar to the way Paul used it in Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Absolutely. Just just different notes. Yeah, right. <laughs> Same patch. John really didn't seem to take to it. I mean, of course, there's no room for it on Plastic Ono Band. And then after that, I'm a little bit surprised it doesn't really show up on Imagine. I could have seen it being used in some places on Imagine. Well, particularly, Mom, I don't want to be a soldier. Yeah. There's a perfect space for that white noise again. Right. But then he probably was like, I don't want to sound anything like the Beatles. George used it a little bit on All Things Must Pass, but then he too kind of, eh, okay. And it would take until the synthesizer revolution for any of them to kind of move back in that direction. Well, that came relatively fast. Groups using synthesizers. Paul was using it by 1974. On Bane on the Run. Extra texture, George picks it up again a little bit. And then, of course, <laughs> that George would become buddies with Jeff Lynn, Mr. Uh, Synthesizer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's an evolution. Um. <laughs> there you go. That's some of our thoughts on keyboards and the Beatles. You think about the Beatles as a keyboard band, I think predominantly we still mostly think about when they use the piano, as you say, in the early days, that would be predominantly George Martin and then later on Paul McCartney. But they also had a strong interest in other keyboard instruments, which you know ties into the whole business of playing with sound. For sure. They did have a couple of other keyboard players. Nicky Hopkins on Revolution. I mean, that really makes that record rock. 
and then Billy Preston, and and he has that sound. But I also have to say that because of the people they were, the courting, the style of the keyboards was very unique to them. And so I'm glad they played as much as they did because even though you could have gotten a technically better player, I don't think you'd have those kind of performances. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. We see it in Get Back, and then we also saw it back in McCartney 321, where he just sits down and says, well, you put a finger here, and you put a finger here, and you put a finger here, and you play these three notes. You move them one up, then you move them two up, then you move them three up, and you just go between them, and you'll have a song. (laughs) Right. I tell kids who want to learn the piano, I say, okay, here's you go. Start with middle C. We all know that as the first thing in a piano lesson. And then think about, like, the Eddie Cochran thing. I say, well, that's, that's a chord, if you play those together. And you just got that, remember this and that. So you do that, one space, finger, one space, finger. So there you got the chord. I say, you know, we started there. Mm-hmm. And so you could kind of write a song with that. Yeah, yeah. But if you just move this up one, it's the same shape. Yeah. You've got another chord. Yeah. So now you've got two chords. You move three. it up again, you've got three chords. Yeah. And move it up again, you've got four chords. Yeah, yeah. And then again, you've got five. And then now you've got six. Well, you don't need more than that. Yeah. So you can now put permutations yeah. of that. And you get songs, you know, like... And, of course, Wings would not have been the same band had they not made Linda, at least initially, the keyboard player. This is true. It forced Paul to write to various types of instruments, certainly mono synthesizers. And right. that would become a piece of the whole wing sound. All right. Next week. Well, so we have decided to open things up. Uh, next week, we're going to have all of our hosts, although they're people you're familiar with. Yes. John Stone will still be with us. Also returning to the show is Lonnie Pena. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of my partners in crime from Toppermost of the Poppermost, Martin Quibell, Marv, he will also be joining us. So from week to week, you never know who I'm going to be talking to, <laughs> although it will be me. <laughs> it will be you. Who you will be sparring with. <laughs> it should be a lot of fun. And we're glad that you're sticking around. If on not quite as frequent a basis, there will be times when there will be multiples of us. You know, we'll probably yes. have three of us together at times. Like ne- As I say, next week, we're going to kind of kick things off with all four of us. You know, I think it's easier with a group, you know. <laughs> And then as we get to the next box, whatever that might be, we might try and arrange some group roundtables then. Looking forward to it. Should be fun. All right. Very good. Thanks, everybody. If you come next week, you'll hear how it goes. We'll talk to you then. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, 
or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we can be reached at when they was fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. was an engineer with a heavy background in physics who applied his knowledge to musical sound. A man by the name of Herb Deutsch was a musician, composer, and educator at Hofstra University in New York and had a progressive mind for music. Together, the two men would create something brand new that would usher electronic music into the future and into the mainstream. A synthesizer, is it just basically an electronic piano or more than that? You can think of it as that. The thing with the synthesizer is that you can really change settings to make different sounds. So you can make it sound like a violin, you can make it sound like a flute, like a bass. The potential there of the sonic palette is possibly large. And the Moog synthesizer is special because it has these modules that allow you to shape the sounds in ways that was never possible before. The Moog synthesizer was preceded in the world of electronic music by the theremin. That's important. And theremin, I know, is that really spooky instrument, It is. Right? You play it without touching it. Very sci-fi sounding. Exactly. Right. That's it. it. You got it. Yeah. In the early 1960s, Bob Moog was busy making theremin kits and selling them. Herb Deutsch had purchased a theremin kit. Then, Chance would bring the two men together at a music educator's conference. Herb Deutsch saw an opportunity. So Herb Deutsch is walking around with all these sounds in his head, and then finally he meets Bob Moog and says, well, you can make these sounds I've got going on in my head a reality. Yeah, so they went down in Bob's cellar, and <laughs> they started to mess around with circuits and plugging things into breadboards. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on, and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. 